Snitches get stitches. It's a phrase that we've all heard. And nobody wants to be thought of as a snitch, but a hell of a lot of inmates will happily snitch if it crowbars their ass out of a jam. Jessica Green's case turned on a Crime Stoppers tip. And that involved an inmate who said that he had information about the homicide of an 18-year-old girl on the West Side. We'll go ahead and call this inmate Snitchy for our purposes. He's now deceased, but a quick glance at his record indicates a criminal history that dated back into the 1980s and involved drug charges, forgery, and grand theft. So here's what Snitchy had to say, but I will start by noting that you should picture a very large neon sign blinking allegedly as you listen to his story, since we don't know Snitchy's motivations. I also think it's fair to say that Snitchy is getting information from someone who absolutely has motives of his own. We're just not sure what those motives are quite yet. So Snitchy says that his cellmate, Derek, told him about the shooting of a girl on the west side. Derek says that he and his brother were arrested during a different burglary that happened after that shooting, and during their burglary, his brother gave him a gun that was used in that homicide. Snitchy did not know the brother's name, but Derek told him that his brother got the gun from someone who was named Curtis. So we've got Derek, who was the cellmate of the snitch, and we got his brother, unnamed as of yet, and we've got someone named Curtis, who supposedly gave the hot gun to Derek's brother. Derek goes on to tell the snitch that the victim's boyfriend, in this case, that would be Antoine, had been in jail bragging about all the drugs that he had in his house. And Curtis just so happened to be in jail with the victim's boyfriend. So one day, while Anton was out of his cell, Curtis padded in and started rifling through his mail, looking for the address. Basically, what that would mean is that Curtis saw an opportunity while he was incarcerated. He gets this address where these drugs are supposed to be, and once he gets out, he and someone else head over to Jessica's to rob the place, and somehow Jessica gets killed in the process. Then, sometime after that, Curtis hands the gun off to another poor schlub who takes it to commit a burglary and gets caught. So, armed with the inmate's story, the investigator shoots back to the office and runs a check on Curtis and Derek. He verified that Derek has a brother named Eric, and the two had been arrested during a burglary attempt, and there were two weapons associated with that incident. So the detective makes a beeline for the property room, and he grabs the guns from that burglary and takes them to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Crime Lab for comparison to the projectile that was recovered from Jessica Green's crime scene. DNA swabs were also taken from the guns. So now we wait, right? But in the meantime, no dust settles on this investigator. He obtains a roll call from the jail because now he wants to know about the locations of Jessica's boyfriend, Antoine, and Curtis, our alleged address stealer, slash guy who hands off murder weapon to someone else to deal with. And guess what? It's learned that the two men, Curtis and Antoine, were housed together at the jail on the same floor. 
Antoine was there from August 3rd to August 31st, and Curtis was there from July 29th to September 1st. That is about a month of time during which Curtis could have entered Antoine's cell to look for his address. I will note that to corroborate this, there is an indication in Bridget Murphy's reporting that there were letters written by Jessica to her boyfriend Antoine in jail. From her series in 2009, one of the articles says, quote, She was dating a childhood friend who was a convicted drug dealer. For a time, he lived in the Hollenhead house. But late that July, he went to jail on a domestic violence charge. It happened after Jessica came home from a club one night, and he accused her of cheating on him. Jessica told police he punched, kicked, and hit her before stomping on her face when she went to the ground. But Jessica tried to drop the charges against him later that night. While he was in jail for violating his probation, she visited and wrote him love letters. That same article mentions that Jessica's family noticed her getting paranoid that summer about someone possibly following her, and she'd even written in her journal about that door-kicking incident that had precipitated her nailing it closed. Now that the detective had confirmed that Antoine and Curtis were housed on the same floor and had access to one another, he goes back to speak with a snitch, and he learns two new bits of information, one of which did match a detail that he knew about the crime. Snitchy says his cellmate Derek told him that the victim had pulled a gun on Curtis during the shooting. This is relevant since Jessica's gun was found on the floor next to her. It's entirely possible that she went out to see what the commotion was, and when faced with two masked intruders, ran back to her room and grabbed the gun from beneath her pillow, but only managed to get it out and point it before the intruder got off a shot. That's when she crumpled to the ground and the gun fell to the floor beside her. Also remember when they found the gun, the safety was still engaged. The second bit of information that the snitch revealed is that Derek told him it was his brother Eric who was with Curtis during the commission of the crime against Jessica Green. But he said that Curtis was the alleged shooter. And this is pretty huge, right? This guy is blabbing like Chatty Cathy over here, tossing his brother under the bus with the eagerness of, oh, I don't know, let's say me breaking into a bag of M&Ms. So now the detective goes and gets some jail calls between brothers Derek and Eric. In one of them, Derek references knowing some information but said, quote, he wasn't a snitch. Which is amusing because that's exactly what he's doing through his cellmate. And you have to wonder if he's doing that on purpose like he knows his cellmate will snitch, or even that he and his cellmate have some sort of deal. In another phone conversation, Derek says, I know what they want to know. So, do we believe Derek, who is essentially snitching on his own brother while lying to him on the phone and telling him he's no snitch? And what's Derek's motivation for giving his cellmate this information? Is he trying to distance himself from the murder weapon? Hoping his cellmate will snitch and finger his brother and Curtis for Jessica's homicide? Is he more involved with Jessica's murder than he's letting on? Or is what he's saying true? And he's snitching on a brother who handed him a hot weapon during a burglary, and now he's in the hot seat. 
Based on Michael's interview, it does sound like the perpetrators were looking for something. So let's take a look at the burglary that Derek and Eric, our brothers in crime, committed and see if there's anything we can learn about how they operate and who they are. First of all, this burglary that they committed together occurred 13 days after Jessica's homicide, about eight miles from her home. So the very first thing we notice is the proximity, both in time and location. So here's what happened. Police get a call, robbery in progress. And this is Jacksonville, Florida, where there is no dearth of police officers on duty at any given time. So almost immediately, multiple patrol vehicles respond to the area. Two officers roll up and see two suspects clamoring from behind some bushes. The perps run from one yard to the next. Two more officers roll up just in time for Eric to sprint right out in front of their patrol car. Cops jump out and a foot chase ensues. Everyone's running, yard to yard, street to street. You can always hear the theme song from cops playing in the background. Eric is captured first, two streets over, where he's handcuffed, read his rights, then transported back to the original scene where police will continue the investigation. He's telling police they've got the wrong person. He didn't do anything, and they were, quote, chasing a ghost, perhaps referring to other possible suspects. Maybe Eric is trying to keep his brother out of it, which is mighty nice of him, given that his brother didn't give him the same courtesy. By now, other units are in the area as well, and a perimeter has been set up. Derek is still on the loose, and he is apparently last seen near a daycare center, which is also, conveniently, owned by Derek's aunt. When law enforcement approaches the daycare and asks her, she denies seeing anyone. But because there were children inside, and it appears that they were skeptical of her answer, they search the premises with a canine. That is when Derek, who is hiding beneath a table in the kitchen, gets himself bit. Because, folks, canines do not need to see you to know that you're there. Derek is immediately treated on scene by a rescue vehicle that had arrived because shots were fired at some point during the melee. Derek is then read his Miranda warnings, handcuffed, and taken into custody. Both men had removed their t-shirts as they fled the scene. One was actually spotted running with it around his head. I have no idea why they were disrobing as they fled. Maybe they used the shirts to wipe down the handguns that they both tossed. Or maybe they were trying to de-outfit themselves from the attire they had been spotted in as suspects fleeing a scene. Or maybe both. Police quickly learned that the suspects were both the nephews of the daycare owner, and they were none too pleased with her because she had given false information during the commission of a felony. So she was also arrested. Evidence technicians processed the scene of the original burglary. They found the door to the residence had been pried open by the suspect, and while they were there, they managed to leave a fresh footprint that matched Eric's shoe. Police found a rear window in the home with the screen forced off and determined that is how they had fled the scene, breaking a computer stand next to the window in the process. Similar to Jessica's crime scene, nothing was missing or stolen from the home. At this point, I'm starting to wonder about the dubious nature of their criminal mastermind abilities. 
In both crimes, the suspects are forced to flee the scene before accomplishing their goal. So we can also check a box next to not real good at the whole robbery thing. Which brings me to why Derek and Eric fled the residence of this burglary in the first place. And that would be the confluence of dogs barking and alerted neighbors, all three of which began yelling and chasing the subjects. One of them even had the presence of mind to grab his shotgun on the way out the door. You see, our brothers Dim had tried to rob a house that was empty. And to their credit, it appears that the collective motto in that neighborhood was Fuck around and find out. A couple neighbors had seen the suspects breaking into the side door of the house with a crowbar. One of them was holding a black revolver with a long barrel. So, because of the information about a firearm being involved, a ground search was conducted. The black handgun was found in the bushes of the yard that they had run through behind the residence that they had tried to burgle. A chrome handgun and a black t-shirt was found in another yard along the path of escape. A pair of socks and another t-shirt were found on the path that Derek took to the daycare. I assume these socks were not pulled off from the running man's feet as he ran, so perhaps he had used them as makeshift gloves to keep from leaving prints, who knows. Burglary must be big in Jacksonville because they have their own burglary division, and that's where these suspects were interviewed. Derek immediately caved, like a souffle when you open the oven door too soon telling investigators that his brother Eric wanted to get some money, so they went to a house where they knew they could, quote, get some good stuff, which he was led to believe was weed and money. He said his brother broke in the door with a crowbar, but police rolled up just after they entered the house. He also said that when they were in the house, Eric handed him a black gun. So, a couple observations. The premise for entering this home was the same that Derek had allegedly told Snitchy about Jessica Green's crime scene, with the promise of drugs inside, and in this case, money as well. I'm not sure why Eric would wait until after they got inside to hand his brother a gun, nor can I picture Eric having two guns on his person and wielding the crowbar. Has he got both guns shoved in his pants? That's a lot for one guy to carry. If that's the case, Brother Derek is clearly not pulling his weight. I tend to think it's equally, if not more likely, that Derek is tap-dancing his way away from that hot gun as fast as his feet can carry him, both right after this burglary when he's being questioned and later when he snitches to his cellmate. And that makes me wonder, if Derek is more involved in Jessica's homicide than he's letting on. For his part, Eric admitted that they had only gone to that house looking for weed and money because a dope dealer with a Chrysler and 24-inch rims stayed in the house, according to him. He also admitted to being the one to pry the door open with the crowbar, but he denied having any gun at all and refused to write a statement. So, in summation, what we have is a similar crime to Jessica's case, at least as far as motivation for breaking into the dwellings, and the promise of drugs or other stuff at the end of that rainbow. We have one individual that is alleged to have been at both crime scenes, if you believe Derek's story to the snitch. And we also have that relevant detail that Jessica pulled a gun on her assailant, which appears to be the case. And interestingly, most of this information 
is coming from Derek, who would also know that information if he was present during Jessica's homicide. What we don't have is physical evidence to bolster that circumstantial evidence. Yet. About two months after Jessica's murder, the FDLE crime lab gets back to the investigator and tells him that the Smith & Wesson revolver submitted to them along with the chrome handgun found at the burglary scene matched the projectile from Jessica's crime scene. Unfortunately, we can't say for sure who was in possession of that gun at either event. All we know is that Derek told the snitch he was the one that was arrested with that gun during the failed burglary. Neither of the brothers had the guns on them when they were taken into custody. They were later found during a search of the area. So we can only surmise based on where each gun was found and the different paths that Eric and Derek took, which of them likely had which weapon. But we certainly don't know which of them, if either, used that gun to shoot Jessica Green. So now the investigator tries to ascertain whether that gun was traceable to any of these individuals. He hits his first pothole when he locates the ATF firearms trace conducted on the guns related to that robbery, but finds that both were manufactured prior to the federally imposed marking and record-keeping requirements of the Gun Control Act of 1968. Score one for the bad guys. As 2007 rolled into 2008, investigators were trying to track down Derek to speak with him about what his cellmate, the snitch, had told them. They also got back a lab report from FDLE that indicated a male profile was found on a swab of blood obtained from, strangely, the ceiling of the victim's bedroom, and another male profile that was found on swabs taken from the kitchen drawer and the front doorknob. But it's that blood on the ceiling in Jessica's room that has me flummoxed. Whose male blood is that? I'm wondering if that one is just an anomaly. By mid-2008, FDLE had completed the lab report on the swabs taken from the guns recovered from Derek and Eric's burglary. Interestingly, no DNA profiles were found on those guns. Hard to imagine men holding weapons would leave no DNA on them, unless their hands were covered. But now there's no physical evidence tying either man to either gun recovered near that burglary scene. And that, my friends, is a problem. As evidenced by the fact that just after he received this report, the investigator updated the prosecutor, who I assume gave him a little nod and said, well, get back out there and find me some evidence. Meanwhile, the prosecutor spoke with Derek's attorney, who basically said, yeah, you know, he mentioned something about a homicide, but he didn't get into any details. You can ask him about that after he testifies at this other thing that we're dealing with. So now they're in a holding pattern because police have never been able to question Derek about the story that they got from his cellmate. 2008 chugs into 2009, and there's a new prosecutor, and still the desire to speak with Derek. It turns out, though, that the trial he was to testify in was postponed until the next year. So again, there's a lot more waiting. Around mid-March that next year, a new detective is assigned to Jessica's case, and he gets all caught up only to also be stymied because Derek still has not testified and the case has been continued until later that year. Everyone's waiting to learn what Derek knows about Jessica's murder 
and in order to get there, they all have to wait on the disposition of the other matters. Unfortunately, the justice system often moves very, very slowly. In December of 2009, Curtis, the guy who allegedly gave Derek and Eric the gun, and according to Derek, was involved, along with his brother, in the shooting of Jessica Green, was sentenced to 30 years in a Florida state prison for a drug charge. In 2010, Eric was sentenced to Florida State Prison for 28 years on that armed burglary charge. But Derek's case kept getting postponed. He was finally sentenced in 2012 for his part in the armed burglary. His sentence was only 28 months. The last report pages that I received from Jacksonville PD are dated April 2011. And the final entry reads as follows. Two inmates within the Florida Department of Corrections will be returned to Jacksonville for the purpose of conducting follow-up interviews. Arrangements for transfer will be coordinated with the state attorney's office. So what happened? Is that it? Because that's all I was given. There are no more pages after that. Were there no new developments? In the next episode, we'll take a deep dive into the criminal histories of Eric, Derek, and Curtis to see what answers we can find there. Stay tuned.